This morning we're going to launch into a brand new series, and the series is called The Legend of Joe Jacobson. And Joe Jacobson was, well, I, I mean, I, I'm sure you guys know all about Joe Jacobson and the legendary role that uh, he played in the Bible and, and how uh, without him the modern state of Israel wouldn't even exist. Uh, you guys know all about Joe J- Jacobson, right? Some of you guys look like you don't know what I'm talking about. Well, if you would, take your Bible and uh, turn with me to, in your Bible to Genesis chapter 37. And I want to read about him. And I want to see if this rings any bells for you. Um, we're going to start reading from verse 2. Genesis chapter th- 37. And let's start reading from verse 2. Uh, the text says, This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, Israel loved Joseph. Israel is another another name for Jacob. So it says, now Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Is that ringing a bell for any of you guys? Um, Joseph or Joe, Jacob's son. Now, they don't give seminary degrees to just anybody. Uh... I don't know what you think I was doing in seminary for all those years, but I was dreaming up stuff like this, genius stuff like this. That's what I was doing in seminary. This, this series is about a, a, the legendary hero of the nation of Israel. Uh, and as mentioned, he, he was a man who, uh, well, he was what theologians would call a type of Christ. In other words, his role and his actions would signal to the nation of Israel in a small way what the real Savior of Israel was going to be like and what he was ultimately going to do for his people. And what I want to do today is I just want to look at Joseph's family background. And I want to, I want to ask the question, what kind of family did Joseph come from? And I think some of you are going to be very surprised when you discover the kind of family that Joseph came from. And by the way, those of you who are thinking that you know all there is to know about Joseph, you've sat in churches and you've heard all about Joseph or something, uh, and, and those of you who are thinking that you can just kick back and daydream and wonder whether the heat is going to beat San Antonio tonight or whether San Antonio is going to beat the heat, uh, I want you to know that uh, I think we're going to go places in this series that you have never been before. And so don't be sleeping. I don't want you to be sleeping through this, all right? I want to look back at verse 3, at the first part of verse 3, actually the first two parts of verse 3, and I want to kind of get a sense of what this man's family background was like. Now, Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. Now, when you first read that, it seems like the text is saying something very obvious, like, yeah, I mean, you know, Doesn't everybody who has a child born in their old age love them more than any of their other children? It seems like that's kind of what it's saying, but it's not saying that at all. And in fact, the history behind that statement is very complicated. I want to just try to give it to you in a nutshell. What I want to do is I want to kind of look back now at at, uh, Joseph's uh, legacy, the family that he was... Uh, that he was born to and that he came from, all right? So I just want to get a sense of that for a, for a moment. The family that Joseph came from was very famous and they were very prosperous. After Adam and Eve's sin, after their rebellion in the Garden of Eden, there were cataclysmic changes that happened to humanity and happened to the planet Earth. There were, the climate changed, the environment changed, there were psychological consequences that came as a result of that, there were physical consequences, people died. 
People died. That was the first time that death had ever been experienced, right after Adam and Eve's rebellion in the garden. There were spiritual consequences that came from that as well. Man was separated from God for the first time. Humanity was separated from the God who created them. No part of life was untouched as a result of their rebellion. But in spite of their rebellion, in his great love for humanity, God didn't give up on humanity. And he hints, right after their rebellion, he begins to hint that he's going to bring a Messiah that's going to rescue the world and he's going to restore the world ultimately one day to God's original design for the world. And as the Bible proceeds, as as the book of Genesis begins to unfold, God begins to unfold his plan to rescue the world. And he begins by calling a guy by the name of Abraham, who is Joseph's great-grandfather. He calls him and he says, he he makes a promise to him. And, and, And a part of the promise, the biggest part of the promise, is that one day in the future, one of his descendants, Abraham's, one of Abraham's descendants would be the Messiah. It was the messianic promise. He said, one of your descendants is going to be this Messiah who's going to rescue the world. Now, I want you to just understand something. That Abraham, when God made this promise to him, Abraham was a pagan. He was an idol worshiper when God made this promise. It wasn't like Abraham was some great man of God, and so God said, you know, you deserve to have the messianic promise. Um, No, it wasn't like that at all. Abraham was an idol worshiper when he was called. And not only was he an idol worshiper, But he also had this nasty habit of being very deceitful when he was under pressure. You know how you revert back to things that that come instinctively to you when you're under pressure? That's what happened with Abraham. And one of his nasty habits was that he was very deceitful when he was under pressure. In addition to that, Abraham had an illegitimate child from one of the family servants that he slept with. Besides having an illegitimate child, Abraham also had a legitimate child whose name was Isaac, and Isaac was Joseph's grandfather. After Abraham died, God said to Isaac, he took Isaac, and he said, he said, okay, now, the messianic promise is going to come through you, not your half-brother, it's going to come through you. So there's Abraham, and then there's Isaac. And so the messianic promise now, Isaac, is yours. The Messiah is going to come from you, from one of your descendants. And like his dad, Isaac also had this, this nasty problem of lying when he was under pressure. Isaac grew up, he got married, he had two sons. And he overtly favored the older son over the younger son. And he wanted the older son to get the messianic promise because he liked him more. But Isaac's wife hatched this deceptive little scheme of her own with the youngest son whose name was Jacob. That's Joseph's dad. She hatched this deceptive little scheme. And what they wanted to do was to deceive Isaac into giving the messianic promise to Jacob, the younger son. And it worked. And in spite of the fact that this little deceptive scheme uh, is what got this uh, blessing or this promise, God said indeed to Jacob, he said, you know what? The Messiah is going to come through you. So you got Abraham, then you got Isaac, and now you got Jacob. The Messiah is going to come through you, Jacob. This is the family background that Joseph comes from. Jacob, uh, Joseph's dad, took the family legacy of deception to new heights. He became extremely, extremely manipulative and extremely deceptive. He married a girl by the name of Rachel. 
He was a polygamist. And he also had illegitimate children. But he always favored his wife, Rachel, over his other wives. Rachel had two sons. One was named Joseph. One was named Benjamin. And Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin. And what does Jacob do with Rachel's oldest son? Well, just like his father before him, he favors one of his children, Joseph, over the rest of the children. Now, that's quite the family legacy, wouldn't you you say? I mean, Joseph, this guy who is going to be used greatly by God, comes from a family of idol worshipers, polygamists, illegitimate children, parental favoritism, and deceptive liars. And in fact, let me just tell you something about Joseph, Jacob's favorite son. He becomes a liar. Look back at verse 2. Look back at verse 2 for just a moment. He says, this is the account of Jacob. Then it says, Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. I imagine they were really hot to have that name. All right. Uh, anyway, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now that phrase, bad report, uh, it means false report. In other words, a lie. And so Joseph, just like his great-grandfather and his grandfather and his father before him, is fast becoming a sneaky liar. Quite the family background, wouldn't you say? And um, if you think the family background is bad, I want you, want, want you to see what the text says about the immediate family. Look again at verse 3. It says, Now Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made a richly ornamented uh, robe for him. Uh, older versions, if you uh, maybe have read an older version of the Bible, it would say coat of many colors. And actually the Hebrew word here is very hard to translate. It could mean coat of many colors. It could mean, uh, it might mean just richly or- ornamented. But the key word is rich. Jacob lavished money on Joseph in a way that he didn't lavish money on the other brothers. And what kind of impact do you think that had on the family system? Look at verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him, and they could not speak a kind word to him, Joseph, that is. In other words, favoritism poisoned the entire family system. Uh, on the one hand, it poisoned the, uh, the older brothers, that they were so full of hatred, and they were so full of jealousy, that they were like a volcano. And this, this volcano, by the way, is going to, it's going to blow the top off their lives, and it's going to blow the top off of this whole family. But that's next week. We'll talk about that next week. That's what it does to the older brothers, full of this growing hatred. And on the other hand, there's Joseph. I want to watch, how, I want you to see how this favoritism from his father poisons him. Joseph, watch this, verse 5. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves. Remember, this is an agrarian society, okay? Uh, They were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. (laughs) Um, I got to tell you that it turns out that that dream is prophetic. But let me ask you something. 
how well do you think this goes down with the already jealous brothers? Uh, how many of you think that this is a good move that's going to bring healing into the family system? Raise your hand. All right, look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. So as you could probably would have imagined, uh, this makes things much worse. It doesn't make it any better. But I want you to watch this. You think that's bad? Watch this. Verse 9. Then he had another dream. And he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said. I had another dream, and this time, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars. That's how many brothers, that's how many brothers he had, 11. Okay. The sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, now remember, this is the father who favors him. His father rebuked him, and he said, what is this dream you have? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now, what you, what, you can, what you can see here and what the narrator is telling us is that as a result of Jacob's favoritism, which Jacob learned from his dad, as a result of his favoritism, Joseph has become pathologically insensitive to the effect that his behavior has on other people. Which is a fancy way of saying that he is an arrogant, spoiled, selfish snot who's also a liar. And he's on his way to becoming very evil. Now here's what I want you to see this morning. Um, on the surface, if you, if you were to look at this family from the outside, what you would see is a nice, big, prosperous family. But underneath the surface... This is a massively dysfunctional family, and it has been for generations, massively, tragically dysfunctional for generations. And there are hidden depths of sin, and hidden depths of brokenness in this family that's going to destroy the family if someone doesn't deal with the issues in this family. Now, I wonder if this surprises you. I wonder if it surprises you that this is the family that God chose to give the messianic promise to. And I wonder if this surprises you that such a hero to God's people could come from a family background like this. Does that surprise you? See, I think, I think that what we could do this morning is we can, we can take very, three very practical uh, things from this look at Joseph's family background. And, and what I want to do is I want to start with the worst, and then I want to make our way, uh, I want to move to the best. Okay, so we're going to start at the worst, and we're going to move to the best. Is that okay with you guys if we do it that way? I'm trying to see if you guys are still with me. Are you with me? Okay, good. Because you guys don't always show that. Like, I'd like a little amen, brother, or a... a uh, hallelujah, or something, just to let me know that you're awake and that you're with me. Okay, how about brother? you got to say brother. Okay. Hallelujah. Okay. Here's the first one. I just Let's get this one. Sin travels down family lines. Sin travels down family lines. Did you notice that in this family? There are these family sin patterns of, of lying and deceit 
and polygamy and favoritism, and they travel down the family lines. And I think it's even fair to say that as they travel down the family lines, that they even gain momentum as they go down the family lines. Why? Why does that happen? Well, because children assume that the family culture in which they grow up is normal, and they repeat it, and they just find new ways to demonstrate the problems within the family. Now, here's what this means for you. And I, I want to do the same with you that I kind of did with Joseph. I want to look back. I want, I want to take you and I want, I want you to look back at your family background. And then I want you, uh, in just a moment, we'll have you look at your descendants. Okay? So let's look back at your family background. Here's what this means for you, that, that sin travels down the family lines. Here's what it means. The first thing is it means is that you are not self-made. We live in a culture uh, in which everyone today wants to believe that they're independent and that they're autonomous. But none of us are. None of us are independent. None of us are autonomous. The things that have been done to you are just as important as the things that have been done by you to make you the person that you are today. We're all products of relationships. The problems that you have, the character flaws that you have, the issues that are in your life, the sin patterns and sin struggles that you have in your life came through relationships. And the only way to deal with all of that in your life is through relationships. It came from relationships and the only way to deal with it is through relationships. You can't solve those issues in your life by yourself. This is why self-help books uh, continue to be published because they don't work. Self-help doesn't work. Uh, if it worked, they wouldn't need to continue to publish self-help books, right? They don't work because you can't solve your problems and your issues by yourself. In fact, you won't even be able to see your issues by yourself. At least that's what my wife has always told me, and I take that to be the gospel. People around you can see you so much better than you can see yourself. You need a community of remarkable love and grace to help you. And the name of that community is the local church, or at least it's supposed to be the local church. And let's all acknowledge that not every local church is a community of remarkable love and grace. But that's what the local church is supposed to be. You know, we've got these banners around the room. I don't know. Take a look at the banners. The first banner uh, around the room says the word believe on it. It says believe. And the idea with that is that entering into this community of remarkable love and grace that is the local church begins with believing in the one who is the head and the heart of this community, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And then if you'll notice, the second phrase says, experience community. See, once you believe in a relationship, uh, once you believe in the head and the heart of this community, Jesus Christ, you need to intentionally put yourself in relationships with other people who will love you and who will show you remarkable grace. And, and at City Church, the way we do that is through our community groups and through our recovery groups. Here's the thing. You will not grow spiritually in isolation. You will not heal in isolation. You just won't. You need community. You need people around you that will show you love and grace. And you need to be intentional about putting yourself in those groups. I don't know how many of you are in community groups this morning, but if you're not in one, I will tell you, you will not grow. You will not heal. You can't deal with all of those issues from the past that are in your life until you Get into a community like that where you have a chance to talk honestly and authentically 
and be treated and loved, be treated with remarkable love and remarkable grace. That's what those are for. As you look at your children, though, the other implication of this principle that sin travels down family lines, until you deal with the family sin patterns that you have inherited, uh, your children are going to inherit those from you. Do you understand that? Um, If you abuse, uh, you can be fairly certain that some of your children are going to do the same. Or at least they will develop their own pathologies as a result of your abuse. If you deceive, if you're deceitful and manipulative, they will be too. If you're a racist, they'll be racists. If you're a misogynist, your sons will be misogynists and your daughters will marry misogynists. Until you deal with those uh, patterns of family sin that you've inherited, they're going to keep on rolling down the line in your family and they're going to gain momentum. But here's the good news about that. The good news is, and we're going to see this more clearly in the weeks ahead, it's not just sin that travels down family lines, but grace travels down family lines too. It's never too late for redemption. This family is... This family is going to go through, this family here that we've been studying, Joseph's family, they're going to go through some heartbreaking problems. But later in their lives, they're going to experience some unbelievable healing too. Because it's never too late for redemption. You can be an agent of grace in your children's lives and in your grandchildren's lives by dealing with the family sin patterns in your life right now. And the way that you do that is first, you just have to acknowledge that it's there. I mean, I'll bet you somebody's been telling you something for a long, long time. Maybe your spouse, maybe it's been friends, maybe it's somebody at work that's been saying, you know, you've got a problem with fill in the blank. Well, it's time, and you've been denying it. You've just, you know, you try to rationalize it, deny it, you don't listen, whatever. It's time to acknowledge it. Because if you don't deal with it, it's going to go on down to your kids and they're going to deal with it in a bigger way. It's time to acknowledge it. That's number one. And second, just simply confess it. Why don't you just go to your family and say, you know what? You guys have been telling me about this for a while. You're right. I got this problem. And then just say, and say I'm wrong. It has been wrong. And it's been wrong for a long time. And then why don't you just say, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? It's never too late to do that. I don't care how old you are. It is never too late to do that. You would be amazed at the healing that it could bring into your kids' and your grandkids' lives. If you would just go, you may, you, your kids may be grown adults. If you would just go and say, I'm sorry, would you ask, would you please forgive me? And then after you ask forgiveness, ask for help. Would you guys help me? Would you help me deal with this? One of my kids recently was really mad at me, and he said, he said those people at, at City Church, they don't know how hard you are to live with. And I said, let's keep it that way. And, uh, 
And uh, no, I, I, I told him, I said, you know what, you're right. They don't know. And I said, I'm sorry. Uh, I ask your forgiveness. And I said to him, would you help me? I, I need help. I need you to help me on this, this issue that he was really mad at me about. I, I, I need help. And that can bring a remarkable healing into your family. Just asking for help. So sin travels down family lines, but grace travels down family lines too, and it's never too late for redemption. Here's the second. Second principle is closely related to what I just said. I think we can take this away from the story that, that your past doesn't have to dictate your future. Look at the last two banners around the room. One of them says, unlearn. And then the other says, change the city. Some of you here today have no idea that you are part of God's redemptive plan for the city of Evansville and the surrounding communities. And you say to yourself, you're like, who, me? Uh, no, listen, not, not me. I've got too many issues. Uh, you don't know my past. I come from a long line of people with issues. Believe me, God doesn't want me in his plan. Listen to me now, and I want, I want you to listen, listen very good. Very well. You need to unlearn that load of garbage. You need to unlearn that load of garbage. I want you to look at Joseph. This guy is a snot-nosed, arrogant, spoiled, lying 17-year-old from a massively dysfunctional family. And God is going to use him to rescue two nations and to keep the promise of the Messiah alive. There's no one that God can't use. And if you think you've been put on this earth just to make money and spend money until you die, you are tragically mistaken. You are here on this planet for a purpose. And I want to tell you something. You're here at City Church for a purpose. May I suggest, as politely and respectfully as I possibly can, that if you are part of City Church, it is time for you to get off your donkey and to start changing this city with the rest of us. There's a core of people that uh, always show up to everything that we do around here. But there's a larger group of people here that tends to sit on their donkey and watch. And we're here to be an agent of grace, an agent of healing, an agent of redemption to the city of Evansville. We're not here to be donkey sitters. And so some of you, I would just like to say politely, respectfully, it's time to get off your donkey and to start serving with the rest of us and change the city of Evansville. Third point, if you're still with me. Are you still with me? <laughs> Finally, this is the one that, this is, hey, this is not the Jerry Springer show. I didn't ask you to just sh shout out things individually. In unison, you shout out in unison, but okay, I'm just kidding. Finally, and this is the one that really excites me, and this is why I want to end with this one. This story teaches us that the Bible is not about religion. It's about the gospel. This story teaches us the Bible is not about religion. It's about the gospel. And what do I mean by that? What, what do I mean when I say that it's not about religion, but it's about the gospel? Well, you understand that traditional religion and the gospel are two very different things. They're, they're, they're utterly different things. Traditional religion says, um, here are the rules for right living, 
And here in the Bible are the exemplars of right living. Here are the heroes of the faith and the stories of their lives. Now you go live like them and God will bless you. That's traditional religion. And I I would suggest to you that many of you have been taught traditional religion instead of the gospel from the Bible. And how can you know if you have been taught traditional religion? Here's an answer. Here's one way that you can know. You have never heard anyone describe Joseph's family as massively dysfunctional. You've been taught that Joseph and his family are great examples for living. But look at them. In fact, look at all the heroes of the faith, except Jesus. There aren't any heroes of the faith. They're all broken people. And there's no good guy in this story either. There's just brokenness upon brokenness upon brokenness. They're filled with hate, this family. They're filled with bitterness. They're filled with jealousy and and deceit. It's everywhere. And so what in the world could a story like this mean? What what, what am I supposed to make of a story like this? How, how, How is this supposed to help me live a good life? Well, understand the Bible's not really mainly trying to show you how to live a good life. Frankly, if it was, why would we be reading this story? I mean, there's nothing here in this story about how to raise a a solid, healthy family. I mean, they're not great example of a, they're not a great example of a solid, healthy family, are they? Oh, of course not. The Bible's purpose is not so much to show you how to live a good life. The Bible's purpose is to show you how desperately you need God's grace and how God's grace can break into your life and save you from the sin and from the brokenness that you would never otherwise be able to overcome. See, see, traditional religion, it says, here's here's sort of the the principle or the, the tagline for traditional religion. If you obey, then you'll be accepted by God. That's traditional religion. The gospel says something completely different, utterly different. You can't combine these two things, right? I mean, like one is, well, they contradict each other. You know what I'm saying. Here's what the gospel says. If you're absolutely, if you are absolutely accepted and sure you're accepted, then and only then could you ever begin to obey. See, traditional religion, if you obey, then you'll be accepted. The gospel says, no, 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 no. You'll never be able to obey until you know that you're absolutely accepted and that you're sure that you're accepted. Then, then you'll be able to obey. Those are two utterly different things. And every page of the Bible shows us the difference that the Bible is not about religion. The Bible is about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the big S Savior that all the little S Saviors point to. The only one in the Bible who wasn't broken and yet allowed his body to be broken for us. The only one whose blood wasn't tainted by sin and yet allowed his blood to be shed to forgive our sin. Religion, traditional religion, is bad news. Uh, It produces guilt and shame in people. And it causes sin to go deeper into people's lives. And it never brings healing. It never does. The gospel, on the other hand, is good news. And it's on every page of the Bible. And it's good news for you. And I want to tell you that it is also good news for the city of Evansville. The cross of Christ changes everything. It changes you. It changes your potential. It changes what you can do to be part of God's redemptive plan. 
for the city of Evansville. And as a result, as you put it into action, it also changes the city of Evansville and the surrounding communities. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Our Lord Jesus Christ, we uh, lift you up and to the center in this church. Um, we recognize that you are what brings hope and healing into people and into a community. It, it's not us. It's not our morality. Um, it's not our goodness. It's you that brings hope and healing into a community. And so, Lord, we want you to be the object of worship here at City Church. Lord, would you cause us to be a church that does bring healing into this city? Not by our uh, magnificence as people, but by people who show your grace and what your grace has done in our brokenness. And Lord, as we display that, and as we get out and show grace to other people, Lord, you can heal, heal a city. Lord, I know that there are people here this morning that come from all kinds of family backgrounds and that maybe as a result of that they feel weighed down by that, that the gravity of their family background holds their feet to the ground. And Lord, would you inspire them this morning to know that you and your grace can cause them to soar like eagles and that you can use them profoundly as part of your redemptive plan for this city. Lord, we thank you for your encouragement. We thank you that the Bible is not about traditional religion, but it's about the gospel. And it's in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we rejoice and that we sing and worship this morning. We love you. Amen.